Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Green Train Blues. Written by Hattie Liu. Published in The World of Chinese. Narrated by... Elise Ribbons. Ten hours on China's mobile public forum. 2.30 p.m. Gubeikou. Train 4471. The daily service from Beijing to Chengdu stops at Gubeikou Pass in the Yanshan Mountains every afternoon. Rumor has it that it delivers fresh vegetables to a military police contingent nearby. It's a step down from the thousands of soldiers who defended the capital against the Japanese here in 1933, and much reduced compared to the Ming Dynasty, when the scraggy, scun-scorched rampants of the Great Wall now overlooking the tracks had been the Imperial Army's last stand before the Beijing city gates. For the passengers, the doors don't open, and there's no way to tell if you're really riding with the Border Patrol's greens. However, the few minutes the train spends here serve as a convenient visual reminder that you're leaving Beijing and entering the province of Hubei. We've exited the frontier, says Mr. Dai, a construction worker seated to my right. He's using an ancient term, chusai, which in modern Chinese retains all its evocations of exiled politicians, princesses married off to far-off tribes, and poor settlers setting forth into the unknown. But for Dai, it actually means the opposite. Once you exit the frontier, you know you're almost home. And suddenly, he's smiling. Finally. Gubeiko is just 140 kilometers northeast of Beijing, but we've been on the road since 9 in the morning. That's an average speed of 25 kilometers an hour, one-fourteenth the speed of the Chinese rails system's showpiece high rail. That's an average speed of 25 kilometers an hour, one-fourteenth the speed of the Chinese rail system's showpiece high-speed rail dubbed green-skin trains for their iconic forest green livery and yellow trim, trains like 4471 are, unsurprisingly, living on borrowed time in a country for which rail infrastructure has long been a matter of national pride. Whereas China's HSR network, the world's longest as of three years ago, gains around 2,000 kilometers of track each year, four out of seven remaining green train services in the Beijing area were phased out at the start of 2017. 4471 is one of the only survivors, and even it has had its schedule reduced. Where these old relics are still found, rattling with carriages left over from the 1980s, they obey a protocol that the passengers sum up as stopping wherever there's a station, standing inside wherever there's a passing train. We literally make way for modernity. Why are you on this train? Four young passengers sitting across the aisle, three e-commerce entrepreneurs and an accountant. Ask me as soon as I sit down. Traveling with a camera, no luggage, and two foreign interns, I am cut out for HSR's air-conditioned interiors and plush seats. My new companions sport bright colors and collegiate-looking glasses that stand out sharply against the cream carriage walls and faded blue leather benches, the seat back so perpendicular that it makes them hunch. 
I reply that I like old trains and cheap fares, and pose the question back at them. All other trains were sold out, they admit. On a Chinese train, you can tell a lot about the traveler simply from what they bring. My friends across the aisle, who are not here by choice, travel with hard shell suitcases, ornaments on their phones, and a seemingly bottomless supply of dried convenience store snacks that they bring out one by one. Dai, the construction worker, who takes this train every month, brought sunflower seeds and a luggage trolley loaded with various shaped packages wrapped in plastic bags for a short visit home. The baskets of fruit and monstrously large striped sacks belong to a riotous knot of workers seated in the back. Today is the first day of Golden Week, the only time apart from the Lunar New Year that most migrant workers in China get to visit home. They are a group of mostly strangers who've discovered they hail from the same county and are anointing their new acquaintance with beer, conversation, and a case of yellow apricots that someone has passed around. This hasn't changed throughout the decades on the green-skinned chain. On a journey of tens of hours, with no distractions but proximity to more individuals than perhaps any other moment in your life, the nation gets together to talk. 9.30 a.m., Beijing. By the time we crawl out of the North Fifth Ring Road, the crowd in the back are in full caucus led by a man named Jiang, who, beer in hand, has chosen a topic that perfectly parallels his swinging moods, money. You can never buy a house in Beijing, a worker like you, he shouts at another passenger. Better come home and build a nice house. By the time I'm shuffled into their midst by way of the roulette-like seat changes, typical of a sold-out train, Jiang has started on the fields of wheat outside the window. See that? Frozen to death. Farming is too expensive. That's why I haven't done it in ten years, he says. Then he eyes the camera in my hand. Are you a journalist? Forget Chengde. Come to my village. We've got everything journalists want to see. Houses falling down, paralyzed people on the bed, like my oldest brother. He's a vegetable now because healthcare is too expensive. Across from me, a woman surnamed Cao takes up the thread. It's so expensive to start a lawsuit, she says, continuing an earlier conversation with Jiang's sister-in-law, Ms. Tan. You can sue all your life and never win. And then if the other side has money, they'll pay someone to get revenge. Someone recommends contacting a TV station. These days, the boss would never dare to withhold pay from migrant workers because they'll get exposed. And when I'm shuffled back to die with our new seatmate, Mr. Yo, the two of them are complaining about the price of food on the train. See that beer on the trolley? It's ten kwai. Even bottled water is five kwai. In the store, you used to find beer for six kwai, but it's all ten. Fifteen now. Yo says, and Dai replies, chuckling. Instant noodles are still six kwai. It's probably the only thing that hasn't changed. The hot water is still free as well, warmed by the train's 80s-era coal stoves that also heat the carriages in winter and make everyone's noses itch. The green train itself, it's soon apparent, is the other exception to the everything-is-expensive clause to modern life in China. We always take this train home, when we do go home, Tan tells me aside almost apologetically, as behind her, the crowd begins comparing their houses in the village, have appreciated in value. Time is no consequence. It's cheap. Around 18 renminbi to their hometown in Hubei, as in the 80s, but 110 renminbi to go the same distance by HSR. And that's good enough for people like us. At one point in China's recent past, this was, by necessity, good enough for everyone else as well. Commercial rail travel began in earnest in China after the 1978 reforms loosened the restrictions of the household registration system 
and university education resumed after a 10-year interruption by the Cultural Revolution. Students and rural hukou holders alike began flooding into Chinese cities to seek new opportunities. However, with the reduction in state funding to several sectors of the economy, rail development included, it was estimated that Chinese trains in this period ran at 50% over capacity at all times, 100% at peak periods. For passengers, this meant carriages crammed full to the doors, forcing ticket holders to board through the windows while other long-suffering passengers attempted to push them back out. A trip from Beijing to Shanghai, five hours by HSR, could take 40 hours. Passengers sat on the seat backs and tables and slept under the seats or on luggage racks, where farmers might also have kept chickens and pigs. However, the overcrowded train carriage, crammed with disparate segments of the population, journeying for days on in the neutral hinterlands in between cities, was also a social space unlike any other at a time in China when collectivist ideals were being abandoned and the foundations for today's wealth gap were laid. For all intents and purposes, there was, and is, just one class on the green train. Tickets to a near-mythical, hard-birth class were always sold out or appropriated by those with connections, and everyone else, from student to entrepreneur to peasant-turned-migrant worker, did time together in the hard-seat class carriage. As the generation that came of age in the post-reform era is fond of recalling, it was smelly, chaotic, and they wouldn't want it back under any terms compared to the spaciousness and genteel calm of the HSR. But it was also a formative social experience, undergone collectively, made possible by people from many walks of life leaving home and leaving their prescribed social roles for the first time. No one with rudimentary people skills was without partners for card games or offers of food to share. 5.25 p.m. Naohaiying Station A public space made up of diverse social interests, almost by default, becomes a political space as well. In modern China, where the mass line model of political participation has mandated that grievances be addressed to the party and change to come only through the party apparatus, it's sometimes said that only three forums still exist where individuals can vent their criticism. Before there was the internet and the heated political debates that are reputed to take place inside the nation's taxis, there was the train. Qing Dynasty reformer Kang Youwei, in as early as the late 19th century, had singled out the railroad, a major component in his ultimately failed proposals for strengthening the nation. It lent itself to connecting language, likewise customs, he wrote, and would lead to the development and transmission of wisdom. Ironically, it would be in 1966, when the nation was on the verge of breakdown, that the railroad was first mobilized to a definite political aim. During the Great Linkage, Da Chuanlian, movement of the Cultural Revolution, when Red Guards could ride the rails for free, millions of youths traveled to attend rallies in Beijing and then to re-education in the countryside. It presaged the travel boom of the 80s, both in that it was the first time the post-1949 rail system saw significant ridership and that carriage capacities were stretched beyond limit. Packed in for days on end with their peers from around the country, Red Guards sang revolutionary songs, fought, and tried their best to study the masses they met on the train or saw outside. But they also traded stories, played cards, and flirted like youths away from home for the first time, as historian and former Red Guard Zhu Xueqin recalled in an essay, the overcrowded carriage gave youths of opposite sexes the ideal excuse to sit in each other's laps. As the student generation of the 80s grew up and grew rich side by side with the Chinese economy, 
now enjoying a great variety of train speeds, legroom, and privacy levels commensurate to their individual needs and achievements in the capitalist lottery, it's the migrant class that has remained on the green train, and unclear what effect their discussions can achieve. As we inch closer to the workers' final destination of Longhua County, Hebei, the strident mood of the carriage as we exited the frontier dampened into a discussion of Su Lao Sen, literally Su the Third, a cult figure whose name only I appear to not know. He's the host of Hebei's TV rule channel, a folk hero who accepts people's invitations to come and do exposés on their village's problems. Inspired by my camera, which turns out to be the most revealing object on this journey after all, they are wondering how they can get their stories told. Tan doesn't believe they can. He's just a hotline. You can call to complain and he'll send a journalist over, but you don't know what will happen after that or what they'll do above, she says, referring by shorthand to the bureaucratic layers through which all national policy and funding, however initially promising, are filtered and diluted by the time it reaches their level. The sky is high and the emperor is far away, Tao quotes. It's not hard work that's the problem. As long as they treat you right, you know, Tan says after a pause. You're happy to work long hours, or go home only twice a year. When others are respectful to you, pay attention to your needs. At a 30-minute stop in Nohaying, a station surrounded by wheat fields near the end of the journey, we're let out for a walk on the platform, and my fellow travelers discuss home prices again with Mr. Hua, the lone station master. He seems pleased by the company, for, as he tells me, we're the only passenger train that stops here all day. Not even the return train comes here, he beams as we pull away from the station. In January 2017, three months after my journey, Nohaying was removed from train 4471's schedule. No passenger trains now stop at the station in the wheat fields at all, and I wonder if the space for a spontaneous public forum in China has grown smaller still. 6.15 p.m. Longhua, Hebei. It's a good way to meet people, to unwind, Tan says of the green train. We started talking and found out we're all from the same place, and we've been talking ever since. Perhaps only during periods like the Lunar New Year or Golden Week, when, as in the 80s, the green train might be the only choice, can you meet people on the train still? Young entrepreneurs huddled over their screens until you draw them into conversation, someone with a camera who might be able to tell your story. I had not sat down among the workers in the back for long before I'm asked for contact details. The few business cards I had are snatched up. Maybe your village will end up on TV tomorrow, Jiang jokes to each person in turn, though I've told him several times I don't work in TV. A woman sitting nearby, whom I've never spoken to, comes over and takes my last card, then hands it back after reading. Maybe it won't make a difference, It's how a seatmate, Mr. Lee, suddenly pipes up. He's holding the card and looking at me though his phrasing is strictly third-person. Even if we tell journalists what's going on and they put us on TV, maybe nothing will happen, right? I think I'm supposed to contradict him. At Longhua, the train all but empties. The young entrepreneurs, Jiang and the others, file past me, and in the flurry of goodbyes, of everyone fetching their own luggage and calculating the taxi fare to their respective homes, they've all become like strangers again. But before all the passengers have gone, I look up and the woman who returned my card earlier is back. Smiling slightly, and still without saying a word, she takes the last card from my hands and hurries out the door.